0: chapter 23 this morning, uh, we have uh, the continuation of God pouring out his law. And we stopped short last time. And I'm so glad because when I started reading through my slides, I realized I made a major mistake in the feasts. And so because of that, I dug a little deeper and I got to learn a little bit more. And I'm so thankful when the Lord sometimes says, hey, your time's up, you need to stop. And so with that being said, as we continue on in chapter 23, God is laying out for them how he is to be worshipped. And before he even gets to uh, the feast that we're going to look at today, he tells them, I want you to remember the Sabbath. And we went into that last week, but the Sabbath is meant to be for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. But in all of our ways, we're to acknowledge the Lord and let him direct our path. And many times, when we're moving, we don't get silent enough to hear his voice. And so the Sabbath is a gift of physical rest, but it's also a time to be instructed by the Lord. And so in chapter 23, verse 13, it says, In all that I have said to you, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, Be circumspect. And make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. So he's setting up their religious calendar, if you will. Three times I want you to keep a feast, a festival, a celebration. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. So when you come to worship, I want you to come to this feast of unleavened bread, and you shall not appear before me empty-handed. He's saying, I'm providing for you, and I want you to give to me out of the abundance I have provided for you. He says, and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year. So after you've already harvested all of your crops, I want you to bring in some of the crops that you've harvested in Thanksgiving. In the fruit of your labors from the field. So, three times in the year, verse 17, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So one of the first conditions is he says, I want you to appear before me, But if nobody else comes, I want all of your males to appear before me specifically for three times a year. And I believe that the reason for that is that they're to maintain their identity. Remember, they're going into a land that is full of all kinds of cultures, a world that is telling them this is how God is to be worshipped. And they had many gods. So the reality is they are going to need reminded regularly. This is who God is, this is what he has done, and this is who you are because of that. And you might think, this kind of sounds like our culture. I mean, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. And for some of you, you're going, yeah, it was awesome. And for some of you, you're going, yeah, I remembered where I came from. And it wasn't great, it was hard. But the reality is, to maintain cultural identity, we have to constantly be reminded of who we are in Christ That's why I believe it's so important to gather regularly with other people that believe in Jesus as a Jesus follower, so that I can remember who I am, I can remember what God has done, and then also hear stories of what he is doing. God's still alive, by the way. He's still doing things in the lives of those that we worship with, and I think many times we rob each other by not just simply telling what God did throughout the week, but it also it leads to more thanksgiving as we share those testimonies because we have more to praise God about because we've gotten together and shared those stories. And so he says, I want you to maintain these three feasts, and men are to lead their families, and so it would make sense that they're not to miss, to miss a feast. They should be at every feast, they should be there recounting the faithfulness of God. And then also be the one leading the family to sacrifice to God. Remember, they're going to these feasts, and they're not just going to eat. It's not just about what I can go and take from the feast. It's what I can bring to the feast. And so as we worship God, it's not about what we come to take from God. It's what we come to offer to God. Now, recognizing that everything that we have, even the breath in our lungs, is a gift from God. He's not saying give all of it to me. He's saying come and make an offering to me. And in the case of these feasts, he says in verse 17, these are three times a year your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. So as they partake in the feast of unleavened bread, they would offer a guilt or a a sin offering. And the guilt or sin offering would make atonement for their sinfulness. It would simply shed the blood of an innocent animal in exchange for uh, their unrighteousness. The innocent animal dies on their behest to cover their sin. Uh, Leviticus says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal of sin. And if you're real about yourself, you know that we have a sin problem. And so God is always making ways for us to atone or make us at one with God again. Our sin separates us. The sacrifice makes us one again with God. Excuse me. And so all that to be said, when you make your offering of blood, of my sacrifice, you shall not make it with leavened bread, but only with unleavened bread. And if you remember, there was a practical reason for this. In when they were bring, being delivered, the Israelites, from Egypt, they had to leave in haste. And in order to make bread, you have to put leaven in it. And when you put leaven in it, it rises. But he said, you don't have time for that. Leave the leaven out. So they're essentially eating crackers, or what they call matzah. But when they're eating it, it's also because... They didn't have time to let it rise, and so they have this bread, and they're eating it for seven days to remember what God did in the past. He delivered them, and he delivered them quickly, and they were delivered because they trusted in the blood of the lamb. Remember, they were to kill a lamb, put the blood, and it sounds kind of barbaric, on the doorposts, and the lentils of their doorframe so that when the angel of death came through over the land he would kill any firstborn in a house that wasn't atoned for by the blood they hadn't trusted in the blood of the lamb but for anybody who had put the blood on their house they would be passed over and they would not receive the wrath And so because of that they were delivered because the Pharaoh having lost his firstborn said I'm tired of the plagues. I'm tired of losing people. I'm tired of this God of death that you have get out And so they were delivered by God To the egyptians. It was a curse But to the israelites who were slaves for 400 years. It was a blessing And so he says you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread leaven is a type of sin Leaven is a picture of sin. A little bit of sin leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin in your life makes the whole life sinful. One commandment broken means that you have to make atonement. And so he says, Also, you shall not let the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. When you offer an animal as sacrifice to me, don't just burn up the parts you don't want. Burn up the whole thing. Why? Why? The fat is not to be left till the next morning. Why would they leave the fat till the next morning? Because it's the best portion. And if you've ever had bacon, you know that fat is the best tasting part of the animal. Right? (laughs) So now I get an amen. Right. Okay. (laughs) But that being said, when you think about it, if you eat a ribeye, it's the best cut of the meat because it's marbled with fat. Well, God likes the fat of the offering as well. He knows that it tastes the best. And while he doesn't care about sustenance or the taste of things, he wants us to offer the best of the best. He wants the best cut. And so that being said, he says, don't leave the fat until morning, offer it all to me, even the best. And then he says, verse 19, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What's that about? You guys have all had a goat, right? And you all boil the milk and then you put, what is that? Well, to them it made total sense because they're going into a land that makes offerings to one of their gods in the land of Canaan and they would literally, this was a pagan ritual, boil a goat in its mother's milk. And they would do that to appease this certain god, the god of fertility. It was part of the Ishtar religion. So they would worship Ishtar, Easter, fertility, new life, abundant crops. And so in order to get lots of crops to grow, they would appease this god by boiling a goat and its mother's milk and so he says you're not to do that remember they're not to have any other gods before him they're not to serve any of the gods of the land and so because of that he gives this very specific instructions because when you get into a land that doesn't have a river like egypt did where they can just irrigate and make good crops and have fertile soil you're dependent upon something you can't control the rain and so they'd be tempted to appease the God of the rain instead of trusting Yahweh, who is the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And, and we're going to get a little bit further along and we'll dig into that. But all that to say, he says in verse 19, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You're to give it to God. Don't keep it to yourself. And when you give it to God, you're saying, I dedicate this whole crop to you. I trust that the rest of it, this is the best. If you've ever gardened, you know that the first fruit that comes off of the vine is always the best. But he says, don't eat it. Don't keep it. Don't sell it. Give it to me and I'll provide the rest. Almost sounds like Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you need will be added unto you. And so, we continue on. He says in verse 20. Nope, I skipped ahead. <clears throat> Sorry. So these three feasts that he's just given, what is the reason for the feasts? Well, we talked about the fact that there's three, and one of the reasons is that they would regularly get together and maintain their cultural identity, remembering what God has done, trusting him for what he's going to do. So what they might think that he's going to do and what he was actually going to do might be two separate things. But the feast of Passover and unleavened bread is often lumped together in Scripture. The reason being is that they would be celebrated right together. The feast of Passover was the time when they, 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 they got out of the land. The feast of unleavened bread was the, what they ate as they left the land. So this feast that they were to do every year was to celebrate their past redemption. They were bought out of slavery, literally, from the Egyptians owned them. And so they're celebrating what God did in buying them back from their enslavement to Egypt. Or for us, we might celebrate the fact that God's blood in Jesus bought us back from the slavery of the world, and we were slaves before Christ. We were not set free until Christ. But what they didn't know, the Israelites, is that it was this feast was meant to point to the future redemption that Christ would give for all who are enslaved to sin. So the Israelites got to hear about it first, and they didn't even know it. I love this, because the Old Testament has these types and shadows, and it's all about Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, In verse 21, it says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. No longer slaves, no longer owned by the world, but now we've become God's righteousness because we are in Christ Jesus. I love that bought back from the slavery of sin. And then in Galatians, now that I finally let you get there, Galatians chapter 3, in verse 13, says that Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that the blessing of Abraham, so that blessing that Abraham received, Might come upon us, the Gentiles, in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. We trust God, and it's accounted to us as righteousness by faith. That's what Romans says. And so all of this says that this feast about Jesus was about the redemption that they had already experienced. They would celebrate it every year. They would year by year go over it. And then their sons and their daughters would say, why are we doing this? And they would say, I'm glad you asked. Because when we were in Egypt as slaves, and then they would tell the whole story over again. Not every week, but definitely every year. And that would be how they maintain their cultural identity. Now, this second feast, the feast of harvest, the feast of first fruits, they were to celebrate God's provision of fruit from the earth to sustain them. They would break up the ground. They would sow seed. And as they would sow seed, they would get to grow up a crop that would feed their animals. It would make bread on their tables. And then they would also have some to give to the Lord. But what I want to do right now is read to you this little pamphlet I have. It's about Jewish feasts of the Bible. And if you want to dig a little deeper, they're all listed in Leviticus in chapter 23. And you might say, why does any of this matter? It does. And I'll get there because the substance is all about Jesus. All of these feasts Colossians chapter 2 verse 17 says are a shadow Pointing to the substance of Jesus Christ And so In the feast of first fruits or the feast of harvest This little pamphlet tells me That people offered the first ripe sheaf The first fruits of barley to the lord as an act of dedicating the entire harvest to him On passover a marked sheaf of grain was bundled and it was left standing in the field. On the next day, the first day of unleavened bread, the sheaf was cut and prepared for the offering on the third day. They would offer it on the third day. The offering of first fruits was on the third day. So Passover, Jesus was slain as our Passover lamb. And as they would celebrate on the third day, we had the Feast of Firstfruits, where they would take this offering that third day and they would give it to the Lord. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus rose on the third day, fulfilling the Feast of Firstfruits. And so I want to just read from my slide there where it says, it was to point to Christ's future provision of life, from the grave to save them eternally, physically, and spiritually. And I'll point it out to you how. In John chapter 12, in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. And the feast that he's talking about here is the feast of Passover. So then they came to Philip, one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came, and he told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, if you're Jesus' disciples, you're thinking, Awesome! We haven't had any food. We haven't had anywhere to live. Finally, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, and we're going to get to sit next to him while he's on his throne. The hour has come that Jesus would be glorified, except Jesus continued to talk, and then he talked about the glorification process. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces, what? Much grain. So Jesus is saying, I am the grain of wheat. And I'm going to be glorified. The hour has come. I'm going to be glorified in death. Wait, what? How do you set up a kingdom with a a guy that's going to be the king But he says, I'm getting ready to die. Usually the king has to live to be a king, right? So he goes on to say, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. So the following of him sounds awesome if you know about the resurrection. But if you're a disciple and he says I'm getting ready to die and you need to follow me That sounds terrible This is not good news I've spent my whole life trying to stay alive So you're telling me if I want to keep my life. I gotta give it up I gotta die I gotta offer it as a sacrifice And don't leave any of the fat till the morning but completely consumed And jesus is saying where i'm going you will go also. So, did he mean in death? Well, yes, he's already told his disciples, if anybody would follow me, he must first deny himself, second, take up his cross, which is a death instrument. It'd be like saying, second, get on the electric chair and let us flip the switch. And then third, follow me. Now, wait a minute. If I'm denying myself, no longer trying to run anything, if I'm dying, I'm dead, how do I follow you? And Jesus said, if I live, then you're also going to live. So, of course, this is a mystery to them. But what we know from 1 Corinthians 15 is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Third day, the first fruits offered up, brought forth from the grave. You know, we sing songs about it. Up from the grave he arose. It's not a myth, it's not a legend. It happened. How do I know this? Because all of the disciples died for this fact. Multiple witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 says that there were tens of hundreds actually I don't remember exactly how many it said but there were witnesses to this fact other than the disciples people don't die for myths and legends they die for the truth and so all that to say the feast of first fruits was fulfilled on the exact day that they were to celebrate the feast of first fruits every year just like Passover so the third feast is the feast of ingathering he mentions here and it's the feast of pentecost penta means five or 50 is how it works out i'm not a greek scholar but in there pentecost means 50 days which is how long they were to wait until the end of the harvest seven weeks the perfect amount of weeks and at the end of seven weeks of harvesting they would get together and they would celebrate. God's provision of a completed harvest of crops for the year. And if you're a farmer and the harvest is over, you're hoping that in the harvest, you've harvested enough to last through winter, not only for you, but also for your animals. And so that's what they're celebrating. God's provided for us this year, everything that we need for the rest of the year. And so they would celebrate that and they would make an offering of the harvest saying lord It's all yours and we offer it up to you But I also want to point out that this is all pointing to The celebration of god's complete provision of atonement Remember jesus's death He's atoned for our sin He's made us one with god again through his own perfect and spotless blood but number two, the first fruits, the resurrection. We've talked about that. And then number three, all that they would need. Because oftentimes I think that as believers, if we're not careful, we celebrate Jesus' death, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, but we forget that 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the promise of the Father. This is going to be the key to the resurrected life. This is how you're going to have power to testify about me before all of those that I bring you before. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. So the Feast of Harvest, they celebrate the crops, all that they would need to survive physically for the entire year. But at Pentecost, they celebrate God pouring out this third relationship we can have with Him and the Holy Spirit filling us, indwelling us. We have God's holy presence within us. We've become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and now we testify it with Je- of Jesus, not just with our mere perspective, but with boldness, knowing that not only what we believe is the truth, but we've experienced the truth. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We have the birth of the New Testament church and it says when the day of Pentecost on the day that they would celebrate the feast we just read about in Exodus chapter 23 on the day, it says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they had obeyed Jesus and they went back to Jerusalem. He says, I want you to spend time in prayer and wait for the promise of the father they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Almost like 50 days after they left Egypt, they heard the sound from Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. But in this way, 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits, they have the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them And they were all filled with the holy spirit And began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance And so the holy spirit is given to them And it says there verse 5 and this is important There were dwelling in jerusalem jews Devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were they in jerusalem? Why were they pilgrimaging? There I go again, making up words. Why had they all pilgrimaged from their home nations to Jerusalem? Because they were devout Jews celebrating the Feast of Ingathering. And at the Feast of Pentecost, when they were celebrating the full harvest, God says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit on that day, And he says, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. They were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. And he's going to go on in the rest of the chapter to list up that there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene. People from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation that had this Jewish influence, they had come to worship. And what we find out from this pouring out of the Holy Spirit is that they're all speaking in different tongues. And no matter what your theological understanding of this is, people from foreign nations understood what Galilean slack-jawed Hicks were saying. Because God gave them the ability to speak in foreign tongues. I don't know about you guys, but if you've tried to learn a foreign language, it's not easy. It's very difficult because there's cultural aspects to it. But in a moment, God said, I'm going to speak the gospel to you, but I'm going to just give a gift so you don't have to learn. Because what they were finding out on the day of Pentecost is that the gospel, Jesus Christ, offered for our sins wasn't just for the Jewish nation. It was for all nations. God cares about every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And, and I tell you, it's amazing to see that when the gospel is, is unleashed in a new culture, people find out that life has meaning and purpose and that God individually cares about them so much that he Sacrificed his own son. It's a powerful truth. So all of that to say, they're celebrating God's complete provision and atonement and the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus Christ, and all of the offerings that they were making, God made on our behalf. You don't have to offer anything anymore. The offering's been made. The sacrifice is done. And so... All of them are a shadow of what is to come. But don't get busy worshiping the shadow. Worship the person that made the shadow. All of these feasts, all the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Jesus. And so, we have these seven Jewish feasts. We have Passover and unleavened bread. We have the first fruits. We have the Feast of Pentecost. And what I want to point out is that in the New Testament, when Jesus fulfilled these feasts, He filled them on the specific day that they were to worship every year. It's always the same day. And so what I believe is that in the spring of the feasts, which Jesus fulfilled them in his first coming, all of the fall feasts that we are getting ready to look at will be fulfilled in his second coming. And I believe in like manner he'll fulfill them on the exact day that they were to be celebrated. Now, I agree with the New Testament. Jesus even said in the Olivet Discourse, he said, No man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, but only my Father knows the day. But that doesn't mean that we can't know the season. And so here we have the Feast of Trumpets, which I believe will be the feast where Jesus raptures his church from this world And we'll begin the the seven years of tribulation leading up to the Day of Atonement, which is the white throne judgment spoken of, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be the thousand-year physical reign of Jesus Christ on earth. And he'll set up his kingdom. So, what does all of this mean? (laughs) Well, I did a little bit more research, and I thought it was interesting. Passover... And then unleavened bread for seven days, and then the feast of first fruits, seven weeks after that. And then there's Pentecost, which we celebrate in Acts chapter two. And then that begins the church age, what I would call the church age that we live in right now. And it's the time leading up to the Feast of Trumpet Trumpets. So what's interesting about the day of Pentecost is that the New Testament calls the the uh The Holy Spirit, the first fruits of our salvation, the seal, it's the dowry, it's the the bride price. And if you got married in Jewish culture, there'd be a price that you would, as a man, pay to your father-in-law in order to have the right to marry your bride. What's interesting is that the Holy Spirit was given as the guarantee, the seal, to guarantee our passage through this life until we are pulled up and taken to be with our husband because in the jewish marriage ceremony there'd be the dowry paid and then the husband would leave and he'd say hey i'll be back i'm going to prepare a place for you but until then no man knew the day or the hour or how long it would take him to build a house for their marriage and so he would leave and then she would get ready for the marriage but as she got ready for the marriage she wouldn't know when he was coming back. She just always needed to be ready. That'd be awesome, right? Some of you would use so much makeup, you'd be broke. I mean, right? I mean, I'm not wrong. You'd be ready though, right? You'd, you'd always be purifying yourself and making sure you smell right. And 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 while we're awaiting God to call us home on the rapture, we need to let God continue to, by his Holy Spirit, purify our lives so that when he returns we'll be ready to consummate the marriage and at that point he's gonna he's gonna show up at an hour that we do not expect and he's gonna take us to be with the father and there's gonna be the celebration feast of the lamb but until then we wait we await the marriage ceremony and so chapter 23 and verse 20 look at that i've hit like four or five verses <clears throat> remembering that he's getting ready to take them into the land he says celebrate these feasts and then he says behold i'm going to send an angel before you to keep you in the way to bring you into this land which i have prepared for you beware to, beware of him speaking of the angel and obey his voice follow his leadership Don't provoke him or he will not pardon your transgressions. Now angels have no ability to forgive sin and they have no uh, ability to not forgive sin. They are actually ministers of those who receive salvation. So I believe that this is a pre-incarnate, Old Testament experience of Jesus. He says, I'm sending my angel before you to keep you in the way. He's going to shepherd you don't provoke him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him now there's only one whose name god's name is in him and his name speaks to his character but what is god's name in isaiah chapter 9 it says he shall be called wonderful counselor almighty god everlasting father prince of peace He says, my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. If you'll obey my voice, if you'll follow this angel I've sent before you, this messenger, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. I'm going to fight on your behalf. I'm going to clear the land for my angel will go before you. He will bring you into the Amorites, these nations that live there already, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I will cut them all off before you. Now, before you think, well, that's kind of harsh. He's just going to come in and kill all these people. Well, he had already told Abraham that he was going to take them to Egypt for a set amount of time. He actually said 400 years. Why? Why? He said, because the iniquity of the people that live in that land already is not full yet. I'm going to let them have as much leash as they need to hang themselves with. They've got my testimony about them and they've not repented about sin, but I'm going to give them time still. So much time that for 400 years the the Israelites were kept as slaves in the land. He cares about all nations, whether it seems like it or not. But there was a time where they no longer could repent. And he comes in and he's going to displace them from this land that he's promised to Abraham. He says, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor shall you serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars, their places of worship. They are false gods. You shall not worship them. So you shall serve the Lord your God And he will bless your bread and your water. In other words, he'll take care of your provisions, even down to the most base provisions that you need. He says, I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one among you shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and make all your enemies turn their backs to you. In other words, they'll flee from your presence. They'll be afraid of you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. And so in all of this, he's making a covenant with them. But I want you to notice that this covenant is based upon their obedience to him. All the other covenants so far, Genesis 3.15, I'm going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but I'm going to crush the serpent. There's no conditions built in that. He says, I'm going to do it. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 through 22, he says, no longer will I flood the globe and kill all mankind, but instead, I'm going to be gracious to you. And a sign to remember that, a sign of his covenant, he's going to hang up his war bow. And we see it, and it's the bow that's created when it rains and the sun's out, reminding us of God's grace. I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. There was no conditions based upon that. He actually says, even though man's thoughts and intentions are still wicked, I will never again judge the earth by water. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. That's my covenant to Abraham is what God said. No conditions. Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. No conditions on that land being given to Abraham and his descendants. But in this covenant... This agreement between God and man, God and specifically Israel's descendants, he says, if you will obey me, if you will heed my voice, a sign that reminds you, your dashboard, if you want to know if you're walking rightly with me, I'm going to make sure that there's no sickness among you. I'm going to keep you in the land. I'm going to defeat your enemies. Notice he says there won't be any miscarriages. What a blessing that would be, right? If you've ever suffered from that or or several you know that that that's a promise that is amazing because those happen but what i want to point out is that these blessings to the israelites in that covenant those physical blessings are not given to you and i as believers they were a sign in the old testament to show them whether or not they were walking faithfully with him but in the New Testament, the New Covenant says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Paul writes to the Ephesians that he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And so the abundance that they had, God promised, I'm going to provide for you abundantly. But you'd be very quickly, if you made your theology based on old covenant theology, you'd think, man, if God loves me, he's always going to bless me physically. But the problem with that is that if you look at the the life of our Savior, he was obedient in every possible way, and yet many times he went without food or a place to live. The Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. The Apostle Paul, who shared the gospel and probably, arguably, more nations than anybody in the New Testament, suffered physically and greatly. So in the New Testament, there are spiritual blessings that overcome those physical curses, you might say, or those physical losses. Uh, But all that to say that in the New Covenant, our abundance is not found in things. Our abundance and our blessings, while they can be physical. And God will speak to you specifically sometimes when you're meditating on His Word to say, hey, I'm going to take care of this physical thing for you. What I want to point out is that God cares way more about how your heart is doing and how your spirit is flourishing and experiencing abundance. So don't fall into the trap of of life and saying, well, if I believe God, he's always going to, you know, the abundance of wealth and clothing. These are the things that the Gentiles, the pagans, those that are without faith spend their whole life seeking after, and those things can be taken within a moment. And so, if you obey, I'll take you into the land that I promised you. But I want to point out, he continues on in verse 30, Actually, verse 29, he says, I will not drive them out, these nations that already live there, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. You're not big enough to inhabit the whole land. If I gave you the whole land right now, then the crops would go to waste. The land would become desolate and misused, and the beasts, their animals, their livestock, would be too much for you to handle. So little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you receive Christ the sin in your life that god wants to deal with he conquers your enemies right away there's some stuff that when i got saved god conquered it right away he just took it from me and there's some stuff that for whatever reason took years and years before god rooted it out and attacked it and delivered me from it and i always wondered why And I truly believe that God wants to deliver us from all of our sin. And I truly believe that positionally, when we come to know Christ and we trust in him by faith, we are all that we're ever going to be in Christ. We can't add anything to that. He looks down upon us. He sees Christ's righteousness no longer our sin. But practically, there are still things that plague our lives because we don't have victory over it for one reason or another. And pray as you might. Sometimes God says, I want to deliver you, but not yet. Because do you know what happens when sin overruns you and you can't just do it all on your own? You cry out to God even more. And you develop maturity in your relationship with Him. And you learn to battle against your sin, not against flesh and blood, but on your knees, trusting that He will deliver And he's the only one that can save. And so sometimes God doesn't fully deliver us into the land right away or give us the thing we're asking for right away, even if it's something good because we're not mature enough yet to be held responsible for it. Just like many of you just today might have a 15 or a 16-year-old and you don't give them the keys and go, do all that you want. But instead you go, curfew nobody in the car with you you know or whatever other rules you might have for your kids it's not because you don't love your kids you don't want to be held responsible for the consequence they're not ready for that yet and so sometimes god says i'm not going to deliver you into the complete abundance not in a year not in 2 years maybe not in, even in 3 he says little by little i'll drive them out from before you until you've increased and then you will inherit the fullness of the land. And then I'll set your bounds. And he says, here's the survey of your new ground. I'll set the bounds from the red sea to the sea Philistia and from the desert to the river. I will deliver the inhabitants to the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. When you go into the land, I want, you to, I want you to be the one that sets the cultural tone. I don't want you to be afflicted or changed by the culture you're moving into. I want you to be the culture changer. And for us as Christians, by the way, we're not to be affected by the world. We're not to be taught by the world. We're not to be instructed by We're not to bow down to any of the things that they bow down to. We are to be those that set the tone. We're to be uh, the, the, <laughs> the thermostat, not the thermo- thermometer. You're to be a thermostat in the culture, not a thermometer. What do th- thermometers do? The temperature goes up and so does yours. What's a the thermostat do? temperature goes up, and you bring it down. That's what we're called to do in our society, because we worship one God, because we serve him and him only. And so what are the keys? Excuse me. Obedience is the key, right? And you've heard it often said, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? but I want to flip that truth and say something equally true that seems the opposite God is for us when we are for him God's not for you when you take a little journey off into sin town God's not for even if you've trusted Christ and you go into sin God's not for that he's not going to bless it God is for us when we are for him if your life is set apart as an offering to serve and worship Him only, then yes, absolutely. God, when God is for us, who can be against us? And so what are some keys to entering into abundant life? Many of us, we've entered in. We've crossed the Red Sea, and now we're in the wilderness. When I showed up to church the first time, by the way, and really wanted to get my life right, I wasn't in the land. I was still wandering. I'd been wandering for years in the wilderness. Saved but wasted life. And God said, I want to take you out of the wilderness and I want you to take you in the land of promise. So what are the keys to entering the land? Let Jesus go in front of you and guide you. He can be the only one to guide you. Jesus take the wheel is a good thought as long as you're never going to put your hands on the wheel ever again. He's not meant to be your co-pilot. He's meant to be your captain. Be aware of Jesus and obey his voice as you go, not just for salvation, but for daily life. Get used to his voice, get to know it so well, so that when life gets loud, you know the voice of your good shepherd. Listen for his instructions. Lean in each step of the way. Don't put it on autopilot. Follow him and the father will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you're tend to worry about try to take care of yourselves the father is going to take care of that serve Jesus only don't turn aside to other gods our gods are a little bit more confusing they're not cast and covered in gold and have shrines around them our gods often have four wheels and lots of horsepower our gods oftentimes have dollar signs in front of them and we look at how much is in the account Our gods often have a uh, certain symbol like an elephant or a donkey or a flag or a party that goes along with it. Or maybe our God is our job. Whatever it might be for you, trust that if you serve him first and foremost as your priority, don't turn aside to other gods. He'll take care of the rest, I promise. I am a living testimony of that. Trust God's timing. God's going to give you all that he has for you. But sometimes he says, wait. And sometimes it's for a really good reason. He will not bring you in fully until you're ready. And I love that. Because there were many things that I asked God for early on. And he said, no. And he said, wait. And it was because he loved me absolutely wholeheartedly. Relationships money, jobs, sometimes good grades, sometimes good relationships, all of those things. God wants to give them to you, but not until you can appreciate them for the gift that they are from him. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for unanswered prayers. We thank you for no's. We thank you for waits. We thank you for battles that are ahead of us that we will not be able to do alone. And I pray that as we have celebrated and as we've worshipped you this morning, as we've seen how your provision of Jesus is not a new thing, but it's something amazing that you've been planning since the beginning of the nation of Israel, Lord, we know that as we celebrate what you've already done, and as we look forward to the future, if you've been faithful in the past to us, even though we've been faithless many times, we know that that not only are you able, but you're willing and you're going to be faithful in the future. But we have to get our eyes off of the stuff. We have to get our eyes off of the circumstances. and We have to get our eyes wholeheartedly focused upon you. And you're going to take care of the rest. But we have to do it by faith. We have to trust you. It's not by sight anymore. Lord, forgive us when we only look with our physical eyes and we forget that we walk by faith now and not by sight. Help us, Lord. We don't want to grope in the dark and yet when we close our eyes and focus on you, that's when true perspective comes. And so, thank you for your grace thus far. Help us by faith to move forward this week. And we pray that in the stuff that we've been waiting on, would you give us victory? Would you answer those heart cries we've given to you? Would you please defeat the sin in our life that's attacking us from the inside? Help us to give it over to you. Help us to surrender. Help us to give the first fruits of our labors to you. Lord, we know that you're worth it and you're worthy. So Father, continue and we give you new influence today. Lord, be the rudder. Be the steerer. Be our director. Be the angel of the Lord before us. Give us the faith to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.